0: Well, if you want to find that little book of Jude, the back of your New Testament <clears throat> excuse me, as we continue our series, on Wolfproof Your Church and Your Life." Back in the late 1990s, a young visionary pastor planted a church in Seattle, Washington. His name was Mark Driscoll. And uh, he was very entrepreneurial, um, very um, confident, self-confident, and um, church grew like crazy. Uh, a lot of young hipsters, they, they wrote their own music, kind of a grunge style and so forth, and uh, attracted a lot of millennials. Also attracted a lot of criticism. Uh, my wife and I were out in Seattle, and I think it was 2010, to visit friends, and we went to uh, Mars Hill, which is the name of the church, uh, for service, heard Pastor Mark preach. And by the time 2014 rolled around, he was preaching to 15,000 people on a weekend at 15 different campuses. That was the year, though, the things started to really unravel. Over a period of number of years, there was a lot of criticism by ex-members, which you kind of expect, and ex-pastors and ex-elders, and that criticism had grown into a cacophony, and they brought in a number of uh, experienced pastors from outside to try to help um, direct both the church and Mark, and eventually it, brought in Paul Tripp. He was there for eight months trying to sort things out, and finally, the summer of 2014, in a, a uh, phone call that was recorded between him and the elders. He said, I've never seen such a mess in my entire life. I've never seen such a toxic work environment in a local church. And he warned the elders. He said, what, what's coming is going to be far worse than what you've already experienced. Well, it wasn't just a couple months after that Mark stepped down. I know some of you have been following the Christianity Today Rise and Fall Mars Hill podcast. This is kind of symptomatic of Driscoll's approach toward people in the church. He told a group of church planters uh, at a conference one day, there's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. And that's what he did. He ran over people, runs over people, runs over people because he laid low for about two, three years and then planted another church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Trinity, uh, I think it's fellowship. And now the same kinds of things are happening there, same kinds of criticisms. There's a Facebook page devoted to hundreds of people who've left the church and talking about his heavy-handed leadership. Move fast forward to this year. In January, a court found a pastor from Houston, Texas, guilty of... um, what would you call that? Stealing, I guess, from investors. He and a partner sold 3.4 million dollars of worthless bonds uh, to uh, other Christians. And uh, now this is, this is not just a man of a small church. Kirby John Caldwell was pastor of Windsor Village United Methodist Church in Houston. Largest um, Methodist Church in the, in the country, 18,000 members. This is a man who served as a spiritual counselor to both President Bush and President Obama, uh, but he's gonna spend the next six years in prison. He spent, uh, according to court records, about $900,000 of that money to pay off credit card debt and to um, pay off mortgages. Now, I know a little bit about Mark Driscoll. I've had, read a number of his books, been exposed to his ministry. I don't know Kirby John at all, But I don't think that these men are unbelievers. We're talking about wolves in this book Book of Jude. We're talking about people who are unbelievers. The fact of the matter is, though, that even believers can act wolf-like, conduct themselves in predatory fashion. And often what we see is people who simply have lost sight of the calling on their lives to be shepherds to the flock. And we've been talking about, as we read through this little book of Jude, uh, about how bad things were in the churches that Jude was writing to and about. And want to make sure that um, you make the distinction. When we talk about some of the things that we need to guard against in a local church as well as in our lives, we're not necessarily... Possibly, but not necessarily talking about people of influence who aren't believers, but rather who are believers but have lost their way uh, in one or more areas. So we're going to read this morning uh, verses 8 through 16. And I'd like if you'd read together with me out loud. The text will be on the screen. If you don't have a New Living Translation uh, text, uh, we're going to have you stand and read the text together. And then if you would remain standing for a prayer before we dive in. Jude chapter 1, beginning of verse 8. We'll stop at 16. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, Did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit, And have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea. Churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars. Doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch who lived in the seventh generation after Adam. Prophesied about these people. He said listen. The Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. To execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done, and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a pretty grim picture. It sounds like it would have been awful to be in these churches where people are taking advantage of them, trying to get what they want. They're not shepherds. They're takers, not givers. They're not men who love the flock. They're men who pillage throughout the flock. And we'd say, wow, there's nobody like that in our church. We pray there's nobody like that in our church five years from now, or 15, or 30 years. And yet we know that, we know what we're like (laughs) when we look in the mirror and we're reminded of our own sinfulness. We'd be naive to presume that such a person would never appear in our church. And we ask you now, years before, protect us, Lord. Guard our footsteps. Guard our discernment. Give us discernment. Make us wise, corporately, not just individually. We want to pray for the church this morning, the church in the United States and the church around the world, where perhaps there are people like this, entire flocks being led astray, being drawn here, drawn there, because it's not just false doctrine that draws churches away. And we pray for the power and the work and the guidance and the discernment of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers in these churches, that they might be godly churches, pure churches, pristine churches, churches that declare a gospel that, that people welcome because they welcome the people in those churches. We pray, Lord, for leaders all across this country and across the world, that they would be humble men seeking your face often on their knees, men who recognize their own weaknesses and their own shortcomings, quick to repent and slow to be prideful. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning uh, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now that you probably saw a couple of unusual uh, things in this text that Jude is referring to, like what's this about Michael arguing with the devil about Moses' body, and what is this about a prophecy from Enoch? We don't have any of those things in our Bibles, and that's true. These are stories taken from other books that didn't get into the Bible, were not accepted by God's people as from God but nevertheless they contained some things that um, recounted true history so that's what they're referring to now the people that Jude is talking about in this text were probably not local elders they didn't live in a certain town not the local pastors but rather these are uh, itinerant teachers who traveled from place to place to place Now, you have to remember some of the things that are described in here are like awful. It's like, what's happening in the church? Why why aren't they putting these people out of the church? Remember that the the church of Jesus Christ is only about 30 years old at this point. And it's a a young church, it's a new church. It's trying to figure out what its identity is. Now, Christianity was never meant to be a new religion. When you talk to someone who calls themselves a Messianic Jew, they often talk about themselves as completed Jews, and that's perfectly accurate. God intended that the Jewish people would re, uh, embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their prophesied, predicted Messiah, and embrace him and move on from the sacrificial system that was simply designed to prepare them for Jesus Christ. And so it didn't happen that way in the sense that there, there were some Jewish uh, uh Christians in the early church, but there were many Gentiles as well, and many Jews that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so you think about the Gentiles, especially who made up some of these uh, core groups in these churches, they came out of a very promiscuous background, a very distorted background, in many cases, a pagan background, uh, complete with uh, uh, religious prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, and people in the in the religious groups would have sex with those prostitutes and it was an i the idea behind it was it was a way to get closer to their gods and so there's all kinds of messed up thinking in the minds of these gentiles and so it's not uh, too big of a stretch to imagine that teachers who could come in from outside that they didn't know them personally <clears throat> and tell them things and they didn't they couldn't get the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter on the phone or send him an email and say, what about these guys? What about the things that they're teaching us? Because again, remember, they don't have a New Testament put together yet by now. Most of the letters had been written, but they had often ended up at one church and maybe circulated at among six or seven churches. There might not be copies at every church. And so their, their Bible is still the Old Testament. So there's a lot of uncertainty and uh, un- uh, lack of clarity when you don't have an Apostle Paul, an Apostle Peter, an Apostle John at your particular church. So this gives uh, an open door to some of these false teachers coming in and they're saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an apostle of God. Or I'm, I'm sent here by God to give you this new word. And the people are saying, oh, okay. And so some of the things that we read here are just Horrific. And we're trying to apply this, which is not, not a uh, kind of a one-to-one ratio. Uh, ratio that's not the right um, picture. But the kinds of people that Jude is talking about, not necessarily the kinds of people that we're talking about. In the sense that we're not inviting, usually inviting in false teachers that we know nothing about, and then we find out when they're here, oh, this is a problem. We're primarily talking about what can we learn from what Jude is writing about to safeguard ourselves in the future from uh, being misled by, by bad pastors, by bad elders, or maybe not they're not all bad, but we see some, um, some elements of problems that surface in their lives. So I want you to think about that as you think about the future of Keystone Church, as well as your own life, because we're saying not only wolf-proof your, own, your church, but your own life, because as we said the other week, you and I are exposed to a lot of sources today apart from the local church. You've probably listened to another sermon this week on the internet, or you've uh, listened to a podcast, or you've read a Christian book, or you've, you've read an article on the internet. And so how can you wolf-proof your own life, and how can we wolf-proof the church? And so we're going to talk this morning, pull a couple of things out of here, a couple of traits that mark these false teachers that could be problems as well in our future as a church the first we're going to ask questions to pull out these traits and the first one is what is his authority what is his authority now in verse 8 Jude says in the same way these people who claim authority from their what what do you see there in verse 8 they claim authority from their what their dreams thank you their dreams And this is a fundamental problem. Why why aren't these guys claiming authority from the Scriptures? Why aren't they claiming the authority from the Holy Spirit? Why aren't they claiming the authority from the church of Antioch, where they might have been sent out from, or the authority of one of the apostles? The fact that they're claiming authority from something other than these foundational sources is of great concern. Apparently, they... uh, Either they said we have dreams and that makes us authoritative or they said we have this particular dream and we want to teach you about this. That's of great concern. Now, just for the record, if you're relatively new here to Keystone, I want you to know that we do not discount the idea that God can still give dreams to people or visions to people. Now, I personally, I've never had a dream in my life that I felt was from God. I would never saddle him with some of the things I've dreamed of years. I, and I, when we talk about visions we're not talking about the things that corporate America thinks about oh I have a great idea I have a vision. We're talking about actual visions that God uh, implants in our minds and we he says I want you to do this or I want you to call out this or I want you to stop this or I want you to share this message with someone. We're talking about an implanted word from God. We believe that those things are still possible. But those things should always be in concert with or approved by the word of God. They should always be examined by the word of God. And you ask the hard question, Does this uh, is this reinforced by the truth of the scripture? Or is there something here that is going off to the left or off to the right? Now, I, to be honest, I'm not nearly so concerned today about claims of authority or uh, when it comes to visions and dreams. I'm concerned about other kinds of claims to authority. And I want to give you a couple. The first one is the authority of the self-help industry. The authority of the self-help industry. And I, I say this because increasingly we as Christians are embracing counsel from people who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not believe fundamentally that we are broken sinful people and that skews the counsel that we are being given if you do not believe that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl begins as a sinner as a sinful person you're you're going to come up with different counsel than the bible will give you now please don't misunderstand me it's not to say at all that we can't learn something from secular authors you, you could look at my library. By the way, if you want some books, I'm getting rid of hundreds of books. No extra charge. Just come to my office. You can look through them, and they're free for you. I've got to thin down my library because my office is moving to my house at the end of the year. So I've got, I think I've got about 300 books laying on my floor, and there's another 300 on the shelves I've got to get rid of. So anyway, back to my point. This is part of my COVID brain. I go off in little rabbit trails. Um, I've got books on my shelves that are written by secular authors about things like anxiety and depression and marriage and so forth. Here's here's my concern. If that becomes our source of authority and trumps the scriptures, we're going to have a fundamental problem. And I'm convinced that increasingly, as believers, we are becoming less and less shaped by the Word of God and more and more shaped by the people of un-God, if I could put it that way. And, and, and we're, ending up, we're ending up drawing wrong conclusions about what we should do in life, about how we should conduct ourselves as husbands and wives, about how we think and plan and address our children, about how we think about life in general, because we're giving more credence to the books and the other authorities. Again, just a caution Concerned about the authority of the self-help industry. But you know the number one concern that I have today for us as believers? And this comes down to the other voices that we listen to outside of the local church. And that is the authority of personal charisma. The authority of personal charisma. There's a reason that some of these leaders I talked about earlier, we're talking about leaders of thousands and thousands of people in churches. There's a reason that they have so many people. Some of the reasons are good, some of them not so good. I was listening to a podcast a week before last. Someone said, the Internet elevates speaking ab- ability above everything. Let me say that again. The Internet elevates speaking ability above everything. What they mean by that is we are drawn to and captivated by people who can speak really well? It, it's instinctive. I, I mean, I listened to uh, Mark Driscoll for years. I, as I said, I had several of his books. Um, he's captivating. We we are drawn to those with who are speaking with skill and with passion and with confidence and humor. You go to some of the largest churches in America and one of the common denominators from pastor to pastor to pastor is how good they are at using humor. It was interesting. I was listening to J.D. Greer, who's one of my uh, favorite speakers down in North Carolina, pastor of a megachurch. I have a number of his books. But I was listening to him uh, one day talk on a podcast with some other pastors and he was talking about something uh, had come up i don't know if they had snow north carolina doesn't have snow very often but he he didn't have didn't have to preach maybe it was covid and he said you know he said i had my sermon already he said i had all the jokes inserted at the right places and i thought that's so key for the really really good speakers and i don't have a problem with jokes but should that be the kind of thing that hooks us? Is that the kind of thing that's going to convince us that this is a word from the Lord? And I want you to think about the people that you read, I want you to think about the people you listen to on the internet, and I want you to ask yourself, what is it that draws me to listen to them, to read them, to hear from them again and again and again? Is it because I'm confident, like the Bereans, I've gone to to the scriptures after I've listened to them and I see in the book that they're right? Or is it all these other things? The authority of personal charisma. Brothers and sisters, whoever gets your attention, their authority should be the word of God. In case you didn't get it, their authority should be, just like your authority, the word of God. The fact that they can talk well, the fact that they can tell jokes well, not qualifications. The Bible says, your word is truth. How can a young man keep his way pure? By obeying your word. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is the word of God. Now, let me point out a a distinction here. That means that they need to have a grasp on the Bible's themes. And what I mean by that are the commands and the counsel of scripture. A grasp of the Bible's themes. But that is not enough. If they do only that and don't get the Bible's thread, there's a problem. And what I mean by that is Genesis, all 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, have a thread. It's a single thread. We don't have we don't have <clears throat> excuse me uh, this kind of portion of the Bible, and then there's a different kind of portion over here. Or we have stories about Israel here, and and stories about. Uh, um, the intertestamental period here, or a run up to it, and then stories about the church. We have a single thread from Genesis to Revelation, and that thread is the gospel. If you read uh, Genesis chapter three, uh, just lost. What's the verse, Brandon? Help me out. Fifteen. Thank you. Genesis 3:15 is the gospel encapsulated, and you see the gospel continuing throughout the Old Testament Genesis chapter 12, first three verses and on and on and of course we get to Isaiah 53 and it's really blatant about Jesus and what he's going to have to go through and then of course the New Testament there's a single thread throughout the Bible that starts in Genesis and I have to tell you that I preached for a lot of years before I figured this out and and, and so you can end up having a preacher or an elder say that knows the Bible well but they don't have the focus of the gospel. There's a lot of do this and don't do that. There's there's not the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ come to deliver and redeem sinners like you and me, and that becomes an impoverished teaching. What Jesus say to the people? John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, He says, You you search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. And yet these scriptures point to me. It's all about me you're trying to obey the commands but you missed you missed the heart of the command and that is to put your faith in me what must we do to do the works that God requires the people asked Jesus he said the work of God is this trust in the one that he has sent before we leave the whole authority piece look at verse eight again these false teachers were claiming authority from their uh, from their dreams. They lived immoral lives, and they defied authority. In other words, they are claiming authority, but they are defying the authority that they should have. This is something that's important for us as a church to scrutinize when we hire pastors and when we uh, uh, try to discern men for eldership. What's his attitude toward human authority? One of the things that I have become greatly troubled at when I look at the megachurch, by the way, I, I hit on the megachurches some, so much, you probably think I think that's a bad thing. I don't. I think there are problems that are uh, endemic to really, really large churches. I don't think they are automatically problematic. But one of the things that has uh, become more and more prominent probably in the last 20 years is that some of these megachurches have no local elder team. And so, for example, Stephen Furtick, uh, down in North Carolina, again, big megachurch, his salary is not set by anyone in that church. His salary is set by a, a committee of other megachurches, of other churches. He gets his advice. He has an advisory board board comprised of elders from uh, from, uh super pastors from other churches in other words there's no one in his church that he is accountable to that's a problem that's a terribly unhealthy situation and you can see these people here they're not saying you, we're here uh under Paul's authority or under John's authority or we're here under another church's authority no no we're here under our our own authority they defied other human authority all right second question How does he live? Again, verse 8, immoral. They live immoral lives. Verse 13, they commit shameful deeds. Now, we think that these false teachers were Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And I won't try to go into some of the teachings of Gnostics. For one, they were pretty fluid. This group might believe uh, these things. This group of Gnostics believed these things. Gnosticism has a long history goes back to Plato but there were Gnostic Christians in the early church and one of the main things they all agreed on was that the human body is bad and the spirit is good now a very odd belief that came out of that was whatever I do in my body doesn't matter. So if I have sex with another woman or another man for that matter, doesn't matter. Because the body's going to be destroyed one day. It's my spirit that's going to be saved, going to go to heaven. And I can be promiscuous. I can steal with my hands. That's okay because the body is, we know that the body is evil and the body's going to be destroyed. And so these guys are coming in and promoting immorality, teaching immorality, and living immoral lives themselves. Unhealthy distorted, disturbed. And again, you might think, how did this happen? Where are the people in the churches? Why aren't they getting up in arms and saying, this has to stop? If you were a Christian in Corinth, you came to faith in Christ out of a Gentile pagan religion, this might not be that strange to you. And somebody's showing up, and he's claiming authority, and oh, okay, because that makes sense. The Bible says when we think about an elder, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that his character should be above reproach. You want to hire a pastor? Do the best you can to find out if his character is above reproach. If he's got all these doctrinal uh, T's crossed and I's dotted, but his character is eh, it's a problem. Above reproach. That doesn't mean a person is perfect, and when we interview men for eldership. We said we're not looking for you to be a perfect person. None of us are. We're looking for a measure of consistency though. And that's the reason we talk, we interview the wives too. When we are looking at men for eldership, we have a separate interview with the wife and say, we want to know if the guy we see on Sunday is the guy you live with at home. 168 hours a week. Third question. How does he think about money? Look at the middle of verse 11. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. Wow. (laughs) We could talk about a lot of people today who are getting rich off the backs of their contributors. I don't mean just living comfortably. I mean living extravagantly. We've got a prosperity gospel where it's kind of an excuse for leaders to say um, you, should, you should give me a lot of money because if you give me a lot of money then you'll get a lot of money too. This is, this is what Christianity is all about. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. We don't have people in this church and leadership who believe the prosperity gospel. But there might be other things that come to surface in the years ahead. If we have an employee that repeatedly asks for raises, don't think it's not at all wrong to ask for a raise if there's a need, but if that becomes a pattern, then you start to ask, for question, uh, ask some questions or lives a very lavish lifestyle. And I remember when I was um, training for ministry, the little cliche that people would talk about, uh, that pastors would talk about is, and my church has basically told God, you, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. And praise God, that's not, that's not how most churches function anymore today. Um, we're grateful for that. Those of us who are in vocational ministry are grateful for that. But then there's another extreme, and that's really? A pastor should have a house at 16,000 square feet? That seems troubling. we should find godly leaders are content with what they have again first timothy uh, chapter 6 verse 10 the love of money make sure we get the word love in there money's not the root of all kinds of evil but the love of it is love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows how does he think about money and the last question who does he care about? Who does he care about? Verse twelve: They are like sh- middle of verse twelve. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. Verse sixteen: They live to satisfy their desires. They brag about themselves. They flatter other people to get what they want. This is not the mark of a godly leader. This is not the mark excuse me, of someone who is sent from heaven to the church. Let me read First Peter chapter 5, a couple of verses there. This is a passage that, um, as an elder team, we go back to again and again and again, these first four verses in this chapter. Verse 2, you know, one of the things that, um, when, uh, when I became a pastor 30 years ago, I was determined that I was going to try to make a correction that I saw in too many churches. And that was that the leaders are chosen chosen by virtue of whether or not they had a business, whether or not they were successful at running that business, if they had uh, experience on boards and so forth. If you read the qualifications for eldership in the Bible, you don't find any of that there. You find... Qualifications about his character, about his home life, uh, about he, how he thinks about money, about um, alcohol. You find those kinds of things. And I have been blessed these 30 years to work with some incredible men, and most of them didn't own businesses. Um, some of them would have not even had a high school diploma. And I'm okay with that. Because what the Bible looks for in a leader are not those kinds of things. And these four verses are so foundational along with Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 verses in those chapters. And this is what Peter says to the elders. Verse 2. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. In other words, there is a heavenly charge that's been given to you. These are, not just, these are not just people that you make decisions for. These are people that you care for. You're a shepherd. You care about their wounds. You care about their needs. You, you care about their hurts, their injuries. You, you care about their lives coming unraveled. Why? Because you're a shepherd, you're a pastor. This, these are your people, it's your flock care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. This is the kind of men that you want to tap for pastors and for elders in your church. Wolfproof your church. I often tell the elders, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And who picks the leaders in the church? Members like you, if you're members, and you could be a member, next class is sometime in March. Members like you pick the leaders. And after those leaders are in place, Who are they responsible to besides God? Members like you march membership class. But I also want to encourage you to wolf-proof your life. You are the ones who choose what preachers, what teachers, what authors, what podcasters, what music you listen to, you're the one who choose them. Choose wisely. And don't just choose them on the basis of how good they write or how well they speak. Get your Bibles out and see, like the Bereans, check what's being taught and see if this is indeed the case. I was listening to a uh, a sermon by Joel Osteen the other week. Joel drives me absolutely insane. I, I love to watch him, I do. I wish I had his hair and his smile. <laughs> He's so winsome, I just want to keep listening to him. But then what everything he says drives me crazy. I, I mean, he he starts with a premise and then throws this verse in, and that verse in, and that verse in, and they have nothing to do with his premise. I'm like, dude, just preach the Bible. And then there's all this stuff that he doesn't preach that he needs to preach. So much back again to the whole self-help industry. That's just a, his sermons are mostly, and what's interesting is I've heard him preach a sermon or two where he really gets the gospel out there beautifully, but it's the exception Unfortunately, not the rule. And if you just take some of these people that you're listening to, take those sermons or take those books and check what verses they're using and say, is this really what the scripture's teaching? Look at the context and not just that sentence and so forth. And last of all, we can't neglect this. We try to discern who our leaders should be the fact of the matter is we can't always know for sure as as you know we've we've got some new people coming in onto staff here at Keystone and you know Pastor Joel's coming in here in January and you know he's coming from the other side of the country and we can only know so much about him but this is really really key Scripture says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, some things are spiritually discerned. And the whole passage is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates the word of God, but he illuminates stuff to us that we can't know from the word of God. We can't know that Joel is a good guy from the word of God. And so we have to seek God, say, God, give us direction. We're, we're not sure. We don't just want to rule him out because he's on the other side of the country. Help us to know. Give us wisdom. And we believe he has. And it's the same for you. Sometimes I hear people say, I was listening to so-and-so, and there was a check in my spirit. And What they mean by that is that something didn't sound quite right. You should pay attention to those things, because it might well be not just your spirit, but the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you. Father, I I do pray for our church in the years and the decades ahead. God, would you sovereignly protect us from our own um, ignorance, from our own foolishness, that you would give us discernment beyond our own wisdom and our own years, our own knowledge. I pray that we would be men and women of the Word, that we are so shaped by the Word and the gospel it conveys to us that we um, we say, I'm not sure what, I can't really put my finger on it, but something's off with this elder candidate or this pastor candidate. And that you would protect this church. It would be a healthy, uh, gospel-shaped, gospel-proclaiming church for years to come and that we would not become gifted in our criticism but would become gifted in our discernment for your glory and for the good of your church in jesus name